Well, we're a long way from the Stonewall Inn I'm standing on this platform, no one's stopping me to sing But there's a multitude of sins That can hide behind your hashtag, tell me again how love wins Well, there's nothing new about this rage It's a war that's always waged Like I know one bats an eye That when 50 of us die in it It doesn't even make the Daily Mail front page Well, sometimes it's like an uphill climb Yes, sometimes it's like an uphill climb But I'm right by your side And that's what we call pride You don't want to face the fact That each and every day we're still being attacked And sometimes it's by guns And sometimes it's by words And sometimes it's by the North Carolina bathroom acts And yet we're the same as everyone We're all under the same sun But if you're trying to suggest This is just about the West We've spent our whole Looking down the barrel of that gun And sometimes it's like an uphill climb Yes, sometimes it's like an uphill climb But I'm right by your side And that's what we call pride And the love we have each other will defeat the hate we suffer. You're my sisters, brothers, and all that's in between. And if everything that I made of was fashioned by your God above, it was Him that gave this kind of love to me. But sometimes it's like an uphill climb. Yes, sometimes it's like an uphill climb Oh, sometimes it's like an uphill climb But I'm right by your side Oh, I'm right by your side And that's what we call pride And that's why we need pride And that is Grace Petrie off the album Queer as Folk. That is pride. Happy pride to everybody out there celebrating pride. Sometimes it is like an uphill climb, but I'm right there by your side. And that is what we call pride. 
I'm right there by your side as well. Welcome to Polyrical, a podcast of political music, a soundtrack for the resistance, a topical solution for the political revolution. I want to hear from you, so if you like what you hear, or if you don't, you can email me at polyrical at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at polyrical, and check out the website polyrical.com, where you'll find all the back episodes and a way to donate to make and to help keep this podcast free and independent. You can also watch me record live on Twitch. That's at twitch.tv slash unrelated things. And it is June as I record this. It is Pride Month in the U.S. and in many, many countries around the world. And uh, the the struggles that we have fought for decades and decades, centuries even, um, to get basic human rights as queer people um, have borne a lot of fruit, a lot of good, major, significant, positive steps forward. But there's still a hell of a lot of backlash and a hell of a long way to go to get the equality that we deserve. That those struggles are, are always hard fought, and as are other struggles. And as we move forward as a country, we often vow we will never go back, but we see the forces on the other side constantly pushing back in, in all kinds of ways on all kinds of important issues that affect us. This next song up is from David Rovitz. It's called Liberty and Justice for All. And it's about one of those struggles. It's about the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War, where we set up internment camps and we imprisoned Japanese Americans throughout that war. And I listen to to this song by David Rovix and I think about the internment camps we have right now and and think back at the people who pledged after those Japanese internment camps were uh, ended and all of those folks that survived were released I think about the people who then who pledged never again and wonder whether or not they are fighting the internment camps we have on our southern border today where we're locking up without due process asylum seekers, refugees, and other immigrants that have come into this country that have fled disastrous and horrible and deadly situations in their home country to try to find freedom, to try to find liberty. That's the promise of our country is liberty. And they're coming here seeking that, seeking safety. And we're locking them up in internment camps on our southern border. So one must wonder, have we really progressed at all? Do we really mean it when we say under any circumstances, never again. We will see. Here is David Rovix from the album The Other Side. This is Liberty and Justice for All. Do you often remember the day the soldiers came when you 
became a number, not a child with a name. How oft do you recall that specific day when they sold your family home and took you away? Banished to the desert to live in hot tar shacks, having no idea if you'd be ever coming back. How oft do you recall walking to the school, being taught about the glories of democratic rule? As you sat beneath the watchtower, surrounded by a wall, with liberty and justice for all. Do you often remember the young men allowed to leave? To go fight and die in Europe, their families left to grieve. In shacks there in the desert, locked behind a gate. As you went to class each morning in these United States. As you sat beneath the watchtower, surrounded by a wall. With liberty and justice for all. Do you often remember reciting those strange words as you held your hand on heart? Did it all seem so absurd? One nation indivisible, one nation under God, condemned to live behind the wire by a presidential nod. As you sat beneath the watchtower, surrounded by a wall with liberty and justice for all. remember the day your family was set free and you went back to the coast beside the Pacific Sea without a home to go to no soil left to till when you'd recite the pledge each morning was it a bitter pill as you sat beneath the watchtower surrounded by a wall with liberty and justice for all you sat beneath the watchtower, surrounded by a wall, with liberty and justice for all. With liberty and justice for all. And that will bring us to our topic of the episode. The topic of the episode for this episode is liberty. So that song kind of leads right in. Great introduction to the topic. So we can say, what is liberty? One of the lines in that song talked about the interned Japanese who had to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, the same United States that was interning them in essentially concentration camps. Um, it, it reminds me of when I was in high school way back when, and uh, Ronald Reagan was our president, and he was 
attacking Libya militarily for no good reason. And so in high school, I stopped standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. And my homeroom teacher was not a very big fan of this action. And as I initially uh, took this action, he told me I needed to stand. And I told him, no, I didn't need to stand. There was a Supreme Court ruling that uh, reinforced my right to not stand for the pledge. And uh, he did relent and didn't, didn't pursue the matter any further. Uh, as Utah Phillips says, uh, freedom isn't something you're given. Freedom is something you take. And then you wait for someone to try to take it away from you. And the amount that you resist them taking it away is the amount that you are free. So that's what liberty is. But liberty doesn't come without its, uh, without its consequences, without its responsibility. You are ostensibly at liberty to do what you want until it impacts somebody else. Then you're, then you're negatively impacting their liberty. So liberty is a balancing act of uh, what we're allowed to do to each other. Um, before that, that those actions start to impede on the liberties of others. So that's why we have governments. That's why we have collectives. That's why we get together with like-minded people and develop rules for society. That's why we have society uh, to create those rules, those boundaries of our liberty. Um, and uh, with that, I think we'll just jump into the songs. These first couple are pretty brief, so we're going to hear Leon Rosselson and Rob Johnson off the album No Gods, No Masters with Roots of the Liberty Tree. Tom Paine was a rebel, hated lies and tyranny, and from the clear spring of reason his words flowed free from the clear spring of reason his words flowed free and they watered the roots of the liberty tree watered the roots of the liberty tree <laughs> off the self-titled album, obviously called Tree, uh, with Stands Alone. About the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty maybe is, hence, you know, the name, Statue of Liberty, is our greatest kind of overt symbol, symbolic representation of the liberty that we have in our country, that we struggle to preserve or struggle to maintain or struggle to obtain in our country, and uh, 
what we stand for, supposedly, as a country. And it, of course, has a, the famous engraving on the bottom. Give us your poor, your tired, your huddled, tired, your huddled masses yearning to be free, etc. And uh, I don't know, maybe as of late, we should uh, erase that part of the monument. Um, we're going to hear in a minute Evan Greer sing Liberty is a Statue. And actually, the song after that is David Robic, Rovick's with Statue in the Harbor. So it is it is quite the symbol of liberty for us. Um, but as we're going to hear da uh, Evan Greer sing, statues are things we build to remind us of things that have died, which is kind of a prophetic interesting take on what the Statue of Liberty is and means. Um, it was, certainly wasn't relative to its origin as a gift from France representing the, the freedom that we stood for, um, but is, is very appropriate when you compare what other statues we have out there. Uh, statues often are to commemorate the past commemorate history, commemorate things that used to be, but things that are no longer. And so we remember what once was, who was important in our history. Another thing, not to sidetrack down the, the statue uh, debate and conversation about who is important in our history, and that'll be for another time. Um, so let's kick it off. Here is Evan Greer off her album, She, Her, They, Them. This is Liberty is a Statue. She said, no, you're not a girl. You are a boy. You best start acting like one or I. I'll tell your mom, I'll tell your dad I'll send you to the principal Again, now for the last time Tell me, what have you learned today? Teacher, teacher, I learned there is only one way that I can live And that's the way that they program In the textbooks and the TV screens Hey mom, what did I learn today in school? I learned how to be a boy I learned how to be a man And I learned There's an us There's a them There are good guys, there are bad guys The bad guys aren't allowed to be your friends And I learned All about liberty It's a statue in a harbor near a city called New York and I learned all about liberty 
are things that we built to remind us of things that have died but wait I'm so confused cause they told us that sharing was good then I look at my own town and the one next door And I wonder why we don't share some of those mansions With their four-car garages with them and their broken-down mills And this dirty river that runs between us It's not safe swim across They told us so on a field trip to the other side Give us your huddled masses yearning to be free That's what it says on the Statue of Liberty and here they come from the other side, across the southern border, across the great divide, and now they're told they should go away. But the statue in the harbor says stay. Give us your cold and hungry. Let them come by land or sea. Let them all find solace in this land of refugees. Escaping persecution, just trying to survive And they worked as hard as Guatemalans As soon as their ships arrived And now they're told They should go away But the statue in the harbor says stay Give us your persecuted But only if they're white it doesn't say that on a statue that holds aloft the light. What did you think would happen in the lands you overthrew? Where should all the children go after the coup? And now they're told they should go away. But the statue in the harbor says stay. Now they're told. They should go away But the statue in the harbor says stay The statue in the harbor says stay And that'll wrap up our set of songs. That was David Rovix with The Statue in the Harbor. That was off of the album All the News That's Fit to Sing. Here are a few words, more than a few words, actually. Here's quite a few words from Emma Goldman. Uh, this is recorded by a, um, 
volunteer at LibriVox from the book Anarchism and Other Essays. This is Chapter 5, Patriotism, A Menace to Liberty. Part 5, Patriotism, A Menace to Liberty, from Anarchism and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anarchism and Other Essays by Emma Goldman Patriotism, A Menace to Liberty What is patriotism? Is it love of one's birthplace? The place of childhood's recollections and hopes, dreams and aspirations? Is it the place where in childlike naivete we would watch the fleeting clouds and wonder why we too could not run so swiftly? The place where we would count the million glittering stars, terror-stricken lest each one and I should be, piercing the very depths of our little souls? Is it the place where we would listen to the music of the birds and long to have wings to fly even as they to distant lands? or the place where we would sit at mother's knee, enraptured by wonderful tales of great deeds and conquests. In short, is it love for the spot, every inch representing dear and precious recollections of a happy, joyous, and playful childhood? If that were patriotism, few American men of today could be called upon to be patriotic, since the place of play has been turned into factory, mill, and mine, while deafening sounds of machinery have replaced the music of the birds. Nor can we longer hear the tales of great deeds, for the stories our mothers tell today are but those of sorrow, tears, and grief. What, then, is patriotism? Patriotism, sir, is the last resort of scoundrels, said Dr. Johnson. Leo Tolstoy, the greatest anti-patriot of our times, defines patriotism as the principle that will justify the training of wholesale murderers, a trade that requires better equipment for the exercise of man-killing than the making of such necessities of life as shoes, clothing, and houses, a trade that guarantees better returns and greater glory than that of the average working man. Gustave Hervé, another great anti-patriot, justly calls patriotism a superstition, one far more injurious, brutal, and inhumane than religion. The superstition of religion originated in man's inability to explain natural phenomena. That is, when primitive man heard thunder or saw the lightning, he could not account for either, and therefore concluded that back of them must be a force greater than himself. Similarly, he saw a supernatural force in the rain, and in the various other changes in nature. Patriotism, on the other hand, is a superstition artificially created, and maintained through a network of lies and falsehoods, a superstition that robs man of his self-respect and dignity, and increases his arrogance and conceit. Indeed, conceit, arrogance, and egotism are the essentials of patriotism. Let me illustrate. Patriotism assumes that our globe is divided into little spots, each one surrounded by an iron gate. Those who have had the fortune of being born on some particular spot consider themselves better, nobler, grander, more intelligent than the living beings inhabiting any other spot. It is therefore the duty of everyone living on that chosen spot to fight, 
kill and die in the attempt to impose his superiority upon all the others. The inhabitants of the other spots reason in like manner, of course, with the result that from early infancy the mind of the child is poisoned with blood-curdling stories about the Germans, the French, the Italians, Russians, etc. When the child has reached manhood, he is thoroughly saturated with the belief that he is chosen by the Lord himself to defend his country against the attack or invasion of any foreigner. It is for that purpose that we are clamoring for a greater army and navy, more battleships and ammunition. It is for that purpose that America has within a short time spent $400 million. Just think of it. Four hundred million dollars taken from the produce of the people. For surely it is not the rich who contribute to patriotism. They are cosmopolitans, perfectly at home in every land. We in America know well the truth of this. Are not our rich Americans, Frenchmen in France, Germans in Germany, or Englishmen in England? And do they not squander with cosmopolitan grace fortunes coined by American factory children and cotton slaves? Yes, theirs is the patriotism that will make it possible to send messages of condolence to a despot like the Russian Tsar when any mishap befalls him as President Roosevelt did in the name of his people when Sergius was punished by the Russian revolutionists. It is a patriotism that will assist the arch-murderer Diaz in destroying thousands of lives in Mexico, or that will even aid in arresting Mexican revolutionists on American soil and keep them incarcerated in American prisons without the slightest cause or reason. But then... Patriotism is not for those who represent wealth and power. It is good enough for the people. It reminds one of the historic wisdom of Frederick the Great, the bosom friend of Voltaire, who said, Religion is a fraud, but it must be maintained for the masses. That patriotism is rather a costly institution, no one will doubt after considering the following statistics. The progressive increase of the expenditures for the leading armies and navies of the world during the last quarter of a century is a fact of such gravity as to startle every thoughtful student of economic problems. It may be briefly indicated by dividing the time from 1881 to 1905 into five-year periods and noting the disbursements of several great nations for army and navy purposes during the first and last of those periods. From the first to the last of the periods noted, the expenditures of Great Britain increased from $2,101,848,936 to $4,143,226,885. Those of France from $3,324,500,000 to three billion four hundred and fifty five million one hundred and nine thousand nine hundred those of germany from seven hundred and twenty five million two hundred to two billion seven hundred million three hundred and seventy five thousand six hundred those of the united states from one billion two hundred and seventy five million five hundred thousand seven fifty to two billion six hundred and fifty million nine hundred thousand four hundred and fifty 
those of Russia, from 1,900,975,500 to 5,250,445,100, those of Italy, from 1,600,975,750 to 1,755,500,100, and those of Japan, from 182,900,500 to 700,925,475. The military expenditures of each of the nations mentioned increased in each of the five-year periods under review. During the entire interval, from 1881 to 1905, Great Britain's outlay for her army increased fourfold. That of the United States was tripled. Russia's was doubled, that of Germany increased 35%, that of France about 15%, and that of Japan nearly 500%. If we compare the expenditures of these nations upon their armies with their total expenditures for all the 25 years ending with 1905, the proportion rose as follows. In Great Britain from 20% to 37 in the United States from 15 to 23 in France from 16 to 18, in Italy from 12 to 15, in Japan from 12 to 14. On the other hand, it is interesting to note that the proportion in Germany decreased from about 58% to 25, the decrease being due to the enormous increase in the imperial expenditures for other purposes, the fact being that the army expenditures for the period of 1901 to 5 were higher than for any other five-year period preceding. Statistics show that the countries in which army expenditures are greatest, in proportion to the total national revenues, are Great Britain, the United States, Japan, France, and Italy, in the order named. The showing as to the cost of great navies is equally impressive. During the 25 years ending with 1905, naval expenditures increased approximately as follows. Great Britain, 300%. France, 60%, Germany, 600%, the United States, 525%, Russia, 300%, Italy, 250%, and Japan, 700%. With the exception of Great Britain, the United States spends more for naval purposes than any other nation, and this expenditure bears also a larger proportion to the entire national disbursements than that of any other power. In the period 1881 to 5, the expenditure for the United States Navy was $6.20 out of each $100 appropriated for all national purposes. The amount rose to 660 for the next five-year period, to 810 for the next, to 1170 for the next, and to 1640 for 1901 to 5. It is morally certain that the outlay for the current period of five years will show a still further increase. The rising cost of militarism may be still further illustrated by computing it as a per capita tax on population. From the first to the last of the five-year periods taken as the basis for the comparisons here given, it has risen as follows. In Great Britain, from 1847 to 5250. In France, from 1966 to 2362. 
in Germany from $10.17 to 15.51, in the United States from 5.62 to 13.64, in Russia from $6.14 to 8.37, in Italy from 9.59 to 11.24, and in Japan from 86 cents to $3.11. It is in connection with this rough estimate of cost per capita that the economic burden of militarism is most appreciable. The irresistible conclusion from available data is that the increase of expenditure for army and navy purposes is rapidly surpassing the growth of population in each of the countries considered in the present calculation. In other words, a continuation of the increased demands of militarism threatens each of those nations with a progressive exhaustion both of men and resources. The awful waste that patriotism necessitates ought to be sufficient to cure the man of even average intelligence from this disease. Yet patriotism demands still more. The people are urged to be patriotic, and for that luxury they pay, not only by supporting their defenders, but even by sacrificing their own children. Patriotism requires allegiance to the flag, which means obedience and readiness to kill father, mother, brother, sister. The usual contention is that we need a standing army to protect the country from foreign invasion. Every intelligent man and woman knows, however, that this is a myth maintained to frighten and coerce the foolish. The governments of the world, knowing each other's interests, do not invade each other. They have learned that they can gain much more by international arbitration of disputes than by war and conquest. Indeed, as Carlyle said, war is a quarrel between two thieves, too cowardly to fight their own battle. Therefore, they take boys from one village and another village, stick them into uniforms, equip them with guns, and let them loose like wild beasts against each other. It does not require much wisdom to trace every war back to a similar cause. Let us take our own Spanish-American War, supposedly a great and patriotic event in the history of the United States. How our hearts burned with indignation against the atrocious Spaniards. True, our indignation did not flare up spontaneously. It was nurtured by months of newspaper agitation, and long after Butcher Weiler had killed off many noble Cubans and outraged many Cuban women. Still, in justice to the American nation, be it said it did grow indignant and was willing to fight, and that it fought bravely. But when the smoke was over, the dead buried, and the cost of the war came back to the people in an increase in the price of commodities and rent, that is, when we sobered up from our patriotic spree, it suddenly dawned on us that the cause of the Spanish-American War was the consideration of the price of sugar, or to be more explicit that the lives, blood, and money of the American people were used to protect the interests of American capitalists, which were threatened by the Spanish government. That this is not an exaggeration, but is based on absolute facts and figures, is best proven by the attitude of the American government to Cuban labor. When Cuba was firmly in the clutches of the United States, the very soldiers sent to liberate Cuba were ordered to shoot Cuban workingmen during the great cigar-maker strike, which took place shortly after the war. 
nor do we stand alone in waging war for such causes. The curtain is beginning to be lifted on the motives of the terrible Russo-Japanese war, which cost so much blood and tears. And we see again that back of the fierce Moloch of war stands the still fiercer god of commercialism. Kuropatkin, the Russian minister of war during the Russo-Japanese struggle, has revealed the true secret behind the latter. The Tsar and his grand dukes, having invested money in Korean concessions, the war was forced for the sole purpose of speedily accumulating large fortunes. The contention that a standing army and navy is the best security of peace is about as logical as the claim that the most peaceful citizen is he who goes about heavily armed. The experience of everyday life fully proves that the armed individual is invariably anxious to try his strength. The same is historically true of government. Really peaceful countries do not waste life and energy in war preparations, with the result that peace is maintained. However, the clamor for an increased army and navy is not due to any foreign danger. It is owing to the dread of the growing discontent of the masses and of the international spirit among the workers. It is to meet the internal enemy that the powers of various countries are preparing themselves, an enemy who, once awakened to consciousness, will prove more dangerous than any foreign invader. The powers that have for centuries been engaged in enslaving the masses have made a thorough study of their psychology. They know that the people at large are like children whose despair, sorrow, and tears can be turned into joy with a little toy. And the more gorgeously the toy is dressed, the louder the colors, the more it will appeal to the million-headed child. An army and navy represents the people's toys. To make them more attractive and acceptable, hundreds and thousands of dollars are being spent for the display of these toys. That was the purpose of the American government in equipping a fleet and sending it along the Pacific coast, that every American citizen should be made to feel the pride and glory of the United States. The city of San Francisco spent $100,000 for the entertainment of the fleet. Los Angeles, 60000 Seattle and Tacoma, about 100000 To entertain the fleet, did I say? to dine and wine a few superior officers, while the brave boys had to mutiny to get sufficient food. Yes, $260,000 were spent on fireworks, theater parties, and revelries, at a time when men, women, and children through the breadth and length of the country were starving in the streets, when thousands of unemployed were ready to sell their labor at any price. Two hundred and sixty thousand dollars! What could not have been accomplished with such an enormous sum? But instead of bread and shelter, the children of those cities were taken to see the fleet, that it may remain, as one of the newspapers said, a lasting memory for the child. A wonderful thing to remember, is it not? The implements of civilized slaughter. If the mind of the child is to be poisoned with such memories, what hope is there for a true realization of human brotherhood? We Americans claim to be a peace-loving people. We hate bloodshed. We are opposed to violence. 
yet we go into spasms of joy over the possibility of projecting dynamite bombs from flying machines upon helpless citizens. We are ready to hang, electrocute, or lynch anyone who, from economic necessity, will risk his own life in the attempt upon that of some industrial magnet. Yet our hearts swell with pride at the thought that America is becoming the most powerful nation on earth, and that it will eventually plant her iron foot on the necks of all other nations. Such is the logic of patriotism. Considering the evil results that patriotism is fraught with for the average man, it is as nothing compared with the insult and injury that patriotism heaps upon the soldier himself, that poor deluded victim of superstition and ignorance, he, the savior of his country, the protector of his nation. What has patriotism in store for him? A life of slavish submission, vice, and perversion during peace. A life of danger, exposure, and death during war. While on a recent lecture tour in San Francisco, I visited the Presidio, the most beautiful spot overlooking the Bay and Golden Gate Park. Its purpose should have been playgrounds for children, gardens and music for the recreation of the weary. Instead, it is made ugly, dull, and gray by barracks, barracks wherein the rich would not allow their dogs to dwell. In these miserable shanties, soldiers are herded like cattle. Here they waste their young days polishing the boots and brass buttons of their superior officers. Here, too, I saw the distinction of classes. Sturdy sons of a free republic, drawn up in line like convicts, saluting every passing shrimp of a lieutenant. American equality, degrading manhood and elevating the uniform. Barrack life, further, tends to develop tendencies of sexual perversion. It is gradually producing along this line results similar to European military conditions. Havelock Ellis, the noted writer on sex psychology, has made a thorough study of the subject. I quote, Some of the barracks are great centers of male prostitution. The number of soldiers who prostitute themselves is greater than we are willing to believe. It is no exaggeration to say that in certain regiments the presumption is in favor of the venality of the majority of the men. On summer evenings, Hyde Park and the neighborhood of Albert Gate are full of guardsmen and others plying a lively trade, and with little disguise, in uniform or out. In most cases, the proceeds form a comfortable addition to Tommy Atkins' pocket money. To what extent this perversion has eaten its way into the Army and Navy can best be judged from the fact that special houses exist for this form of prostitution. The practice is not limited to England, it is universal. Soldiers are no less sought after in France than in England or in Germany, and special houses for military prostitution exist both in Paris and the garrison towns. Had Mr. Havelock Ellis included America in his investigation of sex perversion, he would have found that the same conditions prevail in our army and navy as in those of other countries. The growth of the standing army inevitably adds to the spread of sex perversion. The barracks are the incubators. 
aside from the sexual effects of barrack life, it also tends to unfit the soldier for useful labor after leaving the army. Men, skilled in a trade, seldom enter the army or navy, but even they, after a military experience, find themselves totally unfitted for their former occupations. Having acquired habits of idleness and a taste for excitement and adventure, no peaceful pursuit can content them. Released from the army, they can turn to no useful work. But it is usually the social riffraff, discharged prisoners and the like, whom either the struggle for life or their own inclination drives into the ranks. These, their military term over, again turn to their former life of crime, more brutalized and degraded than before. It is a well-known fact that in our prisons there is a goodly number of ex-soldiers, while on the other hand the army and navy are to a great extent supplied with ex-convicts. Of all the evil results I have just described, none seems to me so detrimental to human integrity as the spirit patriotism has produced in the case of Private William Buwalda. Because he foolishly believed that one can be a soldier and exercise his rights as a man at the same time, the military authorities punished him severely. True, he had served his country fifteen years, during which time his record was unimpeachable. According to General Funston, who reduced Buwalda's sentence to three years, the first duty of an officer or an enlisted man is unquestioned obedience and loyalty to the government, and it makes no difference whether he approves of that government or not. Thus Funston stamps the true character of allegiance. According to him, entrance into the army abrogates the principles of the Declaration of Independence. What a strange development of patriotism that turns a thinking being into a loyal machine. In justification of this most outrageous sentence of Buwalda, General Funston tells the American people that the soldier's action was a serious crime equal to treason. Now, what did this terrible crime really consist of? Simply in this. William Buwalda was one of 1,500 people who attended a public meeting in San Francisco, and, oh horrors, he shook hands with the speaker, Emma Goldman. A terrible crime indeed which the general calls a great military offense infinitely worse than desertion. Can there be a greater indictment against patriotism than that it will thus brand a man a criminal, throw him into prison, and rob him of the results of fifteen years of faithful service? Buwalda gave to his country the best years of his life and his very manhood. But all that was as nothing. Patriotism is inexorable, and like all insatiable monsters, demands all or nothing. It does not admit that a soldier is also a human being, who has a right to his own feelings and opinions, his own inclinations and ideas. No, patriotism cannot admit of that. That is the lesson which Buwalda was made to learn, made to learn at a rather costly, though not a useless price. When he returned to freedom, he had lost his position in the army, but he regained his self-respect. After all, 
that is worth three years of imprisonment. A writer on the military conditions of America in a recent article commented on the power of the military man over the civilian in Germany. He said, among other things, that if our republic had no other meaning than to guarantee all citizens equal rights, it would have just cause for existence. I am convinced that the writer was not in Colorado during the patriotic regime of General Bell. He probably would have changed his mind had he seen how, in the name of patriotism and the republic, men were thrown into bullpens, dragged about, driven across the border, and subjected to all kinds of indignities. Nor is that Colorado incident the only one in the growth of military power in the United States. There is hardly a strike where troops and militia do not come to the rescue of those in power, and where they do not act as arrogantly and brutally as do the men wearing the Kaiser's uniform. Then, too, we have the Dick military law. Had the writer forgotten that? A great misfortune with most of our writers is that they are absolutely ignorant on current events, or that, lacking honesty, they will not speak of these matters. And so it has come to pass that the Dick military law was rushed through Congress with little discussion and still less publicity a law which gives the president the power to turn a peaceful citizen into a bloodthirsty man-killer, supposedly for the defense of the country, in reality for the protection of the interests of that particular party whose mouthpiece the president happens to be. Our writer claims that militarism can never become such a power in America as abroad, since it is voluntary with us, while compulsory in the old world. Two very important facts, however, the gentleman forgets to consider. First, that conscription has created in Europe a deep-seated hatred of militarism among all classes of society. Thousands of young recruits enlist under protest, and once in the army they will use every possible means to desert. Second, that it is the compulsory feature of militarism which has created a tremendous anti-militarist movement, feared by European powers far more than anything else. After all, the greatest bulwark of capitalism is militarism. The very moment the latter is undermined, capitalism will totter. True, we have no conscription, that is, men are not usually forced to enlist in the army, but we have developed a far more exacting and rigid force. Necessity. Is it not a fact that during industrial depressions there is a tremendous increase in the number of enlistments? The trade of militarism may not be either lucrative or honorable, but it is better than tramping the country in search of work, standing in the bread line, or sleeping in municipal lodging houses. After all, it means thirteen dollars per month, three meals a day, and a place to sleep. Yet even necessity is not sufficiently strong a factor to bring into the army an element of character and manhood. No wonder our military authorities complain of the poor material enlisting in the army and navy. This admission is a very encouraging sign. It proves that there is still enough of the spirit of independence and love of liberty left in the average American to risk starvation rather than don the uniform. 
thinking men and women the world over, are beginning to realize that patriotism is too narrow and limited a conception to meet the necessities of our time. The centralization of power has brought into being an international feeling of solidarity among the oppressed nations of the world, a solidarity which represents a greater harmony of interests between the workingman of America and his brothers abroad than between the American miner and his exploiting compatriot a solidarity which fears not foreign invasion because it is bringing all the workers to the point when they will say to their masters go and do your own killing we have done it long enough for you this solidarity is awakening the consciousness of even the soldiers they too being flesh of the flesh of the great human family a solidarity that has proven infallible more than once during past struggles and which has been the impetus inducing the parisian soldiers during the commune of eighteen seventy one to refuse to obey when ordered to shoot their brothers it has given courage to the men who mutinied on russian warships during recent years it will eventually bring about the uprising of all the oppressed and downtrodden against their international exploiters the proletariat of europe has realized the great force of that solidarity and has as a result inaugurated a war against patriotism and its bloody specter militarism thousands of men fill the prisons of france germany russia and the scandinavian countries because they dared to defy the ancient superstition nor is the movement limited to the working class it has embraced representatives in all stations of life its chief exponents being men and women prominent in art science and letters america will have to follow suit the spirit of militarism has already permeated all walks of life indeed i am convinced that militarism is growing a greater danger here than anywhere else because of the many bribes capitalism holds out to those whom it wishes to destroy the beginning has already been made in the schools evidently the government holds to the jesuitical conception give me the child mind and i will mold the man children are trained in military tactics the glory of military achievements extolled in the curriculum and the youthful minds perverted to suit the government Further, the youth of the country is appealed to in glaring posters to join the army and navy. A fine chance to see the world, cries the governmental huckster. Thus, innocent boys are morally shanghaied into patriotism, and the military Moloch strides conquering through the nation. The American working man has suffered so much at the hands of the soldier, state and federal, that he is quite justified in his disgust with and his opposition to the uniformed parasite. However, mere denunciation will not solve this great problem. What we need is a propaganda of education for the soldier anti-patriotic literature that will enlighten him as to the real horrors of his trade and that will awaken his conscience to his true relation to the man to whose labor he owes his very existence it is precisely this that the authorities fear most it is already high treason for a soldier to attend a radical meeting 
No doubt they will also stamp it high treason for a soldier to read a radical pamphlet. But then has not authority from time immemorial stamped every step of progress as treasonable? Those, however, who earnestly strive for social reconstruction can well afford to face all that. For it is probably even more important to carry the truth into the barracks than into the factory. When we have undermined the patriotic lie, we shall have cleared the path for that great structure wherein all nationalities will be united into a universal brotherhood, a truly free society. And that brings us to our artist of the episode. The artist of the episode this episode is Lavender Country. And we'll be playing four tracks off of the album Lavender Country. Lavender Country is an American country music band formed in 1972, whose self-titled 1973 album is the first known gay-themed album in country music history. Based in Seattle, Washington, the band originally consisted of lead singer and guitarist Patrick Haggerty, keyboardist Michael Carr, singer and fiddler Eve Morris, and guitarist Romer Hammerstrom. Haggerty was born on September 27, 1944, and raised on a dairy farm near Port Angeles, Washington. After college, he joined the Peace Corps, but he was discharged in 1966 for being gay. He later became an artist and an activist with the local chapter of the Gay Liberation Front after moving to Seattle to pursue graduate studies at the University of Washington. The 1973 album was funded and released by Gay Community Social Services of Seattle with funding and production assistance from activist Fajel Ben-Miriam. Just 1,000 copies of the album were pressed at the time of its original release. The band performed at the first Seattle Pride event in 1974 and performed at numerous Pride and other LGBT events throughout Washington, Oregon, and California until their dissolution in 1976. Shan Ote, a DJ for Seattle radio station KRAB, played the band's song, Cryin' These Cocksucking Tears, on the air in 1973, resulting in Ote's dismissal from the station. After disbanding Lavender Country in 1976, Haggerty ran two unsuccessful campaigns for political office, once for Seattle City Council and once as an independent candidate for a seat in the Washington House of Representatives, and continued to work as a gay rights and anti-racism activist. From the album Lavender Country by Lavender Country, this is Straight White Patterns. Wish that I could love you more Than the times we stopped to score The wastelands we've been through before Just because we know them But our gay glimpses disappear Sabotaged by the guilt and fear And the demons whisper in our ear That we can't show them we're mannequins, all staunch and clean While we scheme our hollow dreams And we don't believe men ought to cry for men Because, 
country song with the line packing two grenades in each brazier that was back in the closet again here from the website lavendercountrymusic.com here is a little bit of lavender country's story how is it that i wrote the first gay country album in 1973 the answer is short my dad said I could. My dad, a dairy farmer with 10 kids in redneck land in 1955, in his dung-spattered brown overalls and clawed hopper boots. That dad said I could. He helped me weave a blonde bailing twine wig, put up with Tinkerbell outfits, and drove me in full drag to talent shows when I was 13 over and over again in a hundred different ways. He told me not to sneak. He said it would ruin my immortal soul. Yes, that dad, who never laid a hand to me, pointed out the way so adroitly with the grace of a ballerina. 
I never knew he was the saint of Dry Creek in a sea of racism, sexism, and homophobia. All I knew was he was a dad who loved his kid. So of course I wrote the first gay country album. Don't you think I owed him that? Lavender Country was a community effort for sure, by us, from us, for us. The Stonewall Rebellion crowd, Seattle's out-of-the-closet LGBTQ folks, were on the move, doing all manner of bold creative projects in 1973. Lavender Country was one of them. The community raised the money for the studio, promoted and distributed the bootleg album through a post office box, and came to our shows. And yes, I wrote and sang the songs, except for Eve's song. We knew gay country was absurd for mass distribution, and that was our saving grace. It allowed us to pour our hurt and angry hearts out without compromise to any agent, label, or music exec. They weren't going to bite on gay country, no matter what we said. The door was slammed shut for years for gay country, but we didn't care. We were pissed off. So we made our statement. And here's another part of that statement. This is Come Out Singing. Like no right. 
Tuck in or dangle when you hear that loud gay tango. You just spread your spangled wings and fly. What more can I say? That was Lavender Country by Lavender Country from the album Lavender Country. You can find out more at lavendercountrymusic.com. Joel Raphael has a new album out. It is called Rose Avenue. This is the track. Strong. I am here to stand with you in solidarity. Give a hand to help our mother and our human family For our waters and our daughters The time has come to masterpiece And give a damn about poor people Made poor by bureaucracies We stand waist deep in rivers And through the winter we will stay But discomfort don't mean danger That's the price we have to pay we stand up for the water We know what life is worth And in our hearts we know it's right To stand up for the earth We are strong We're standing tall We have everything we need To calmly carry on We're standing up We're moving forward our sacred water Nothing can stop us now Cause we are strong They say all dreams reside Just on the other side of fear But we are not afraid So the time for dreams is here Corporations cannot make us turn back With their guns and jokes yeah, heroes always end up being ordinary folks We are strong, we are strong. We're, standing tall. we're standing tall We have everything we need to calmly carry on We're standing up, we're moving forward Standing here to save our sacred water Stop us now Cause we are strong Yeah, we are strong
We have everything we, have we need everything to calmly carry on. We're standing up. We're moving forward. Standing here to save our sacred water. Nothing can stop us now. Cause we are strong. just about wrap up this episode of Polyrical. Remember, you can reach out to me. Send me an email at polyrical at gmail.com. You can follow on Twitter at Polyrical. Check out the website polyrical.com for all the back episodes. You can also watch me record Polyrical live on Twitch at twitch.tv slash unrelated things. Here are the Indigo Girls from the album Rites of Passage. This is Let It Be Me. Thanks for listening.